Hey there, this is Hannah, Chief Rebel at DeSkills. Imagine your high schooler could learn to harness artificial intelligence to solve real-world problems for small businesses and nonprofits. Imagine they could get paid doing these impact projects on the weekends or summer break. And imagine that as a result, they could leave high school with more experience and connections than most college graduates. That's DeSkills. Learn more at skills.io. That's dskills.io. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Hey everyone, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. If you are a committed education change agent ready to roll up your sleeves and actively reimagine teaching and learning, simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. My guest today is Garrett Smiley, the co-founder of Sora Schools, a description of which, frankly, is very hard to pin down. Sora is an online learning experience, but beyond that, it is a complex and fabulous answer to the question, what could school be? So that you listeners know what you are in for in this episode, I'm going to quote directly from Sora's website. Our curriculum is designed to meet the needs and goals of all students while delivering a program that is empowering, engaging, rigorous, and relevant. Our approach is founded on inquiry-based and interdisciplinary learning to give students the opportunity to develop knowledge and skills through engaging projects based on real-world challenges and problems. We use a mastery-based approach to evaluating learning allowing students to demonstrate skills and abilities at their own pace and in multiple contexts while fostering intrinsic motivation to deepen understanding. Students have multiple opportunities and avenues by which to demonstrate their learning. The primary methods of learning are expeditions, activities, and independent study projects. Ted Dintersmith, the producer of the film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the book, What School Could Be, said the following for this episode. History has shown us that many of the biggest, boldest innovations come from young visionary entrepreneurs. A few episodes ago, you featured one such entrepreneur, Hannah Grady-Williams, with her DeSkills initiative. Today, you're interviewing the remarkable Garrett Smiley, founder and CEO of Sora Schools, Garrett is out to change the world of education, and he will do exactly that. You will be blown away by his vision of a school that truly prepares kids for their futures and by his plans to reach one million kids. In addition to being a fantastic entrepreneur, Garrett is just a wonderful person. You're in for a fascinating discussion. Listeners, if you want to go even deeper into the inner workings of Sora Schools, check out the Ways We Learn podcast. For this episode, Garrett and I are going to take a long walk down a more philosophical road 
that is focused on what school could be, what learning could be, and what life could be. And now, here's my conversation with Garrett Smiley. Garrett Smiley, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, Garrett, you shared with me that your parents prioritized education, but that because you were a military family, you switched schools frequently. And I realized my wife, Cheryl, is also from a military family, and I really need to ask her about what that experience was like moving from school to school. I'm not sure I've ever talked to her about that. So I have been talking a lot lately on this show about durable skills, soft skills, essential skills, et cetera. But today, I want to ask you about something we might call, maybe this is a new phrase, transitional skills. So as you moved from Seattle to Texas and elsewhere, what skills did you develop that helped you get better and better at making transitions? Mm, That's a wonderful question. I'm curious your wife's take on this as well. But for me, I think the most durable skill is is just meeting new people, right? Constantly being the new kid. It's a crash course in in both human psychology and, and how to build friendships. I would say it also taught me that the only constant life is change, right? So I just became extremely comfortable with this idea that every one to three years, I would be somewhere else. And that's totally okay because there are more wonderful people to meet and more wonderful experiences to be had over there. Mm. Maybe talk a little bit about moments where there was some anxiety built into making a transition and that, you know, what were some of the ways that you sort of worked your way through moments like that? Yeah, it's tough to be too cerebral about it because most of these experiences, I was single digit age, right? Mm. (laughs) A lot of these experiences. So it really just becomes an intuitive thing. And also I'll say, I realized that it would be okay, not only because most of the time I had no problem making friends and most people are nice, but I also realized that if I messed it up, I'd be gone in one to three years. (laughs) Mm. So the, the stakes were low. But this sort of military upbringing and this this transience associated with it, it's like a lot of these high pressure, intense situations growing up. I think it can be like a pressure creates diamond situation, but I've also seen it, you know, have unfortunate effects on kids and them feeling, you know, rootless, perhaps. Mm. Let me come at this from a from a different angle. We know now, Garrett, that kids these days, let's call them Gen Z, kids who are in high school, middle school and high school, will likely have not just multiple jobs, but multiple careers. And if this is true, what general wisdom do you have about moving gracefully from one thing to another? Are there some sort of guiding principles that that would help Gen Zers do that sort of thing? It's funny. I was just thinking about this this morning. So I was thinking about David Epstein's book, Range, oh, and I, I wrote a LinkedIn book. post about it. <laughs> it's unbelievably true that we need to first hone the habits of mind that Mm. will be helpful regardless of where we go in life, right? So I think to connect it with our conversation about the the military upbringing, I think meeting new people, being able to be a chameleon in different environments, that code switching implicit from jumping from Seattle to Texas, and really just understanding different worldviews and being able to 
you know, adapt to the environment you find yourself in, those are unbelievably useful, no matter where you find yourself in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's an example of a skill or a habit of mine that's that's served me so far in my young life. And I think that will be the foundation that continues to serve me when, you know, I, like many folks, I'm sure have have many more challenges, perhaps that don't even look like this current one in front of me. Wow, that's so awesome that you bring up David Epstein's range. I've asked so many guests in previous episodes, Garrett, about that book. And so I'm just going to seize the moment here because I didn't see this one coming. You know, in terms of generalism and specializing, what are your thoughts these days about where we are in our culture and our American culture in terms of the way that schools tend to track kids towards specialization? But according to Epstein, that there are some real upsides to being a generalist, to being someone who understands a broad range of things? Yeah, frankly, I think it's worse than that. I think most schools, I mean, this is cliche at this point, but not only are they using the same mold for every kid, a mold that was perhaps first crafted in the 19th century, and so it's outdated, but not only are they forcing every student into the same mold, the mold they're using is to prepare them to be, you know, an academic in English or a mathematician or they're not training kids how to be competent across different fields, right? Yeah. So I think the most salient point here is that schools need to ask themselves, instead of how can I force kids into the same mold and how, how do I define success as hitting these, you know, these standard benchmarks we all look at as educators, how might they instead reframe the problem to how can I help kids become more interesting humans mm. through this education? Because like Epstein, the point Epstein makes in his book, the most important thing we can do if we want to encourage innovation in society is to create different intersections of competency. We need them to be interested in race car driving and theoretical physics, or we need them to be interested in painting and, I don't know, knitting, right? We need those intersections because if you study the history of innovation, what we, what we find most often is it is people bringing analogies from two different competencies, let's call them, and superimposing them and finding that, oh my goodness, the core truth over here illuminates the problem I'm, I'm working on over here. We really need to work as, as educators and as schools to help kids discover what is interesting about the world, even if it doesn't look like traditional academic subjects. Wow, that's fabulous. And Garrett, that's a perfect segue to my next question. You know, you shared with me a short history of your time in high school when some remarkable things were happening in education, much of which we can say was, quote, virtual, which was a kind of new term at the time. And at the end of this short bio, you said something that literally stopped me in my tracks, which is, quote, it's never been a better time to be a curious person, end quote. So take us through the highlights of this journey from the advent of Khan Academy and YouTube through high school and Georgia Tech to ChatGPT today and why this is such a great time to be a curious person. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful question. 2020, what year are we? 2024 <laughs> is, is an unbelievable time to be a human, but especially to be a student. And the way I can best drive this point home is by contrasting this with my own high school experience. Because in, in middle school, 
I experienced, you know, the pre-digital era. I did what many of us likely remember, which is the textbooks and the lectures. And the number one priority for schools was to be the place where they had information, they had smart people to answer questions, right? right. And right. that is what school is designed around. But then as I entered high school in the early 2010s, like you said, the YouTube and the Khan Academies and all of these new tools really hit the mainstream and laptops in the classroom, right? This yeah. was a big thing yep. that I, I experienced. And in that moment, there was so much rhetoric about, oh my goodness, this is going to change the face of education forever, <laughs> right? Schools will never be the same, everyone said, because of this ubiquity of high quality information through the internet. And we all know that didn't really happen. Schools didn't systemically reimagine themselves. Mm. But for me, all the promise of what could have been in, in bringing internet to education, it did happen in my life, right? Mm. And it happened in many of my friends' lives where I now had these tools and I now had, you know, infinite interesting videos to watch and adaptive problem sets to work on online. And I went from a very normal kid, you know, in, in Texas to someone who just kind of devoured these opportunities and just mm -hmm. really connected with me. And I took them quite far, honestly. And I can only imagine, sure, I was crushing podcasts and YouTube videos and all these things on some of my interests, mainly physics and computer science. But I can only imagine what it would be like if I now had a conversational AI agent mm -hmm. <laughs> next to me to answer my questions. When I was learning to code and I was self-teaching to code in high school, I sometimes spent days trying to figure out an error message, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't on Google. And this was just, it was an exercise in stubbornness, frankly. <laughs> but if I had what we now have, which is this AI agent copy paste the code in the air message, and it solves it instantly. Imagine how much this accelerates the learning process for students today. Yeah, that's awesome, Garrett. I mean, I recall like it was yesterday, I think it was somewhere around 2007, 2008, when I was teaching at a, a small but very traditional independent school. And there was this, this visionary IT guy who saw what I was doing in my classroom and agreed with me that I would be a great person to kind of prototype what it would be like to have one-to-one -one laptops in the classroom. And he installed a, a closet of laptops. I think there were like 15 or 16 of them. And my goodness, the arc of my teaching changed in a heartbeat because all of a sudden we had the opportunity as a community of learners together to just go on these explorations, which you and I will talk about a little bit later, but just on these expeditions, these explorations that just weren't possible before, you know? And so that's awesome. So I have a follow-up question to this. In your short bio, you also said these years were a time when you, via the various tools that you've talked about and the web, could study, quote, the history of beautiful ideas. And I was like, I read that. I'm like, okay, pull up a chair, have the barista make a double shot latte. Let's go down the rabbit hole of beautiful ideas. So from your perch, Garrett, what are the several most beautiful ideas you've explored in your life thus far? And I know that's a big question <laughs> to pop on you, you know, here on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> I may dodge the question a little bit. I don't want to self-incriminate, but <laughs> just to take you from my vantage point, I grew up as a very normal middle-class family, military family. I spent most of my time in Texas, but I lived all across the country. 
we always found our way back to military city USA and San Antonio, right? Yeah. And that comes with a certain subset of information and culture and experiences. And like most kids, I believed what I was told, right? Yeah. And now imagine this information superhighway formatted in these beautiful videos and Kindle books I can buy without anyone knowing. And, and you know, just the onslaught of beautiful ideas that entered my head from the classics to, you know, heretical, you know, books to it just completely opened my mind. And that the gift of knowledge day over day has continued to enrich my life. And I cannot imagine a world where, you know, I was stuck in the 0.00001% of ideas I, I was, you know, supposed mm. to learn growing up. So in your daily life, Garrett, are you still susceptible to the rabbit holes that are beautiful ideas? Do you find yourself from time to time just like going on an exploration of something that came onto your radar screen? And, and if yes, like, what is that like for you? How do you do that? Yeah, absolutely. I've found this is where I get my energy from. I mm. get my energy from beautiful ideas. They're a fuel source, frankly. Wow. <laughs> and this dovetails with my philosophy of motivation, which perhaps we'll talk about in a bit, but just as, just as a teaser, because it's, it's helpful to answer this question. I think people are motivated by seeing why something is important and within their competency, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I stumble across these ideas of, look how this can enrich your ability to be useful to the world around you and help others, or perhaps just look how beautiful this idea connects these other two interests of yours. I just find it's like a never ending well. The more I layer on the connections between ideas, it's deeply exciting, but it also makes me feel like I'm becoming more human and more capable of mm. helping those around me, which is such a source of motivation for people. And I guess what it looks like to answer your question, mm. time is hard to find as, as I'm sure many people yeah. who are you know starting organizations or trying to make an impact in an in industry also relate to, but what a beautiful time to be alive where I can every morning pop in, you know, an audio book or a podcast or just reading 30 or 60 minutes with a cup of coffee every morning. It doesn't take a lot, but I find if I don't consume these ideas, if I'm not reading high quality content, yeah. I feel like I slowly become less and less human and less and less you know, excited to make an impact. So I really do view it as a basic foundation of my life. Wow. So Garrett, when you were 16, you spent three weeks at Stanford University studying in a crash course with 20 other students, modern physics, and you called the experience magical. And I came away thinking that this was one of those, the day the universe changed moments that took you to a road less traveled. So what happened during those three weeks and how did the magic sort of reshuffle your navigational charts, if you will? Yeah, across many axes, honestly. But 
I really, the history of my life, I, I think of as moments where I realized, wait, I wasn't being told the whole truth. There's this completely, there's this other whole branch of existence that no one was telling me about. And it just opens up like a window in my mind. And this really was one of them for the education system, mm. <laughs> because I had experienced this digital transformation firsthand, as we already discussed. Yeah. But I just assumed, okay, traditional education is so hilariously backwards and ineffective in light of these, these you know, new digital tools. And no one has it figured out. And it's basically impossible. I'm just going to take the road less traveled and do this on my own, right? <laughs> and then I go to Stanford and have this experience over that summer where it was a, a combination of, of many different factors where I got to genuinely explore without any sort of grade or, mm. you know, any sort of reward system I was optimizing for. I got to genuinely explore an idea I was interested in with, and this is perhaps reminiscent of connected learning for anyone who's, who's listening, mm -hmm. with other people who are passionate about this with similar motivations from all across the world pursuing genuinely difficult questions and challenges really because i was 16 years old and i you know I, I was no math olympiad but they really didn't pull many punches i mm. hadn't even learned the finer details of calculus yet at this time but they were going all the way down multivariate like <laughs> mm. but they just threw us off the deep end and we were a community of learners for those three weeks just trying to wrap our heads around some of back to the the most beautiful ideas in science, Einstein's mm. theory of relativity, right? Mm -hmm. So that was just unbelievable. And it was an all-in experience. We spent every minute together. We were helping each other. And then we, we'd go play basketball for an hour. And then we'd come back. And it was just so beautiful. And that made me realize just the depravity is perhaps a little grandiose. But just how poor the education I was coming from was with this coercive model where kids were threatened to to learn the very basics, very low expectations. Just the contrast was was absurd. And that's what sent me down this path. Oh, there is another way. How can we bottle up some of that magic and bring it into the normal education system? Mm. So Garrett, I want to go back for a second to the beautiful ideas concept. And I think it was around this time that you began exploring a variant of constructivism, which is constructionism, which when I read that, I'm just like, wow, this was one of those moments for me, Gary. I was like, a whole new idea has just popped into my, you know, into my universe. What is constructionism and where did it appear in your life and, and how are you kind of working it or threading it through, if you will, into the fabric of the work that you're doing today? Yeah. Amazing question. So Seymour Popper was an entry point for me into education because mm. I'd had all those experiences that we've talked about, but I was not very academic in my approach to education. It was just blatantly obvious to me <laughs> that education needed, tr needed to transform given these new influences of technology, right? Mm -hmm. But then I stumbled across in high school. Don't even ask me how. I, <laughs> I have no idea. I cannot remember. But I stumbled across Mindstorms the late Poppert's magnum opus, perhaps. And he walked through how education needs to be a process that mirrors how people work with computers when they're programming. Mm. And the reason why is he builds up this case 
that the debugging mindset every computer scientist has to exist in, which to put it as simply as possible, it's this testing, oh, that failed. Okay, how might I iterate? And just the constant feedback, improvement, iteration, feedback, improvement, iteration, that process, which is really what programming is, Mm. is deeply beneficial in all endeavors of learning, helping kids by getting their hands dirty metaphorically. That is how you best understand subjects. Mm. And he has this whole analogy of math land. So there's like the best way to teach kids things is to create an environment where they have to become competent to solve real challenges in it. It's this immersion, right? Mm -hmm. And so he has this this joke that if you want to learn French, there's a thing called French land, France, where you can just go (laughs) (laughs) and interacting with people. Like you learn French because you're solving problems in French land, right? Yeah. So what might math land look like, right? And that's where he starts. He created even a programming language, the Turtles, which now has hit somewhat mainstream where kids learn about angles and geometry by getting this little turtle, giving the turtle the turtle instructions on how to draw objects or mm-hmm. navigate through through puzzles, yada yada. So that idea really bridged my two interests. There we go, back to David Epstein yeah. range. It bridged my interest in computer science and this deep feeling that education was was outdated. And it showed me you can combine these and and we can explore genuine pedagogical questions with them. Wow. Beautiful. So Garrett, one more question before we go to our first break. You know, I love asking guests about something one of my former guests, Robert Landau, calls, quote, service above self. So your story of service is a real doozy, frankly. What was this Drops of Love nonprofit you started in middle and high school with your sister? And what are your thoughts about the idea of waiting or not waiting for permission to make a difference? So my sister, she's three years older than me. She, in early high school, discovered a very basic thing, an observation many folks have, which is very small amounts of money can give people just the foundational building block for for economic mobility, which is clean water, water infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. And so... She went to this gala, actually, I think at their school, and heard this organization called Living Water International. They said $1 can save one person's life through clean water for a year. That was their calculation. Don't ask me to fact check it. But that was their sort of slogan. Then my sister came back and said, I think we could we could donate at least a dollar, but we could do a lot more. <laughs> so I was young. I was, I was quite young at the time. I don't know, maybe like 10 or 11. Mm. But her and I say, how much is a well? Okay, f- between five dollars and $15,000. I bet we could build a well. I bet we could raise that. And so it was just this moment. And our, our parents were obviously extremely encouraging. And, and that probably made all the difference. But how might we organize fundraisers? How might we, how might we really put ourselves out there in, in this community and try to raise some money? And so we did that. And then at the end of it, this probably was not the most... <laughs> effective altruism on the planet, but we both donated it and went on the trip to help install the well in El Salvador. And then mm. we subsequently did more wells, but just seeing the full life cycle of this idea that my sister brought to me and that we, we birthed together yeah. all the way to look at these faces of people who I looked at the well they're drinking out of. It's stagnant water. 
their hosp- local hospitals getting overrun. It's like 5,000 person town overrun and losing kids and because of this dirty water. And mm. now we just walked in with this local contractor and we built this well and taught them how to maintain it. And, you know, we're just seeing like tears of joy coming from thousands of people's faces, all because we thought, let's throw some fundraisers, right? It, it's not the craziest scale in the world, but what I really push in education is kids need to realize that they are competent. That's one of the number one things we can get across to kids. You can apply your efforts, no matter the age, to benefit those around you. So many kids feel pacified. They, they feel impotent because they just have been taking multiple choice tests their whole lives. They doubt that they, you know, that they matter, right? So that taught me that you can matter at any point by mm. applying yourself. So that was really an eye-opening thing that I, I wish I wish everyone could experience. Yeah, that's a great story, Garrett. I recall I did an interview with someone who became our Hawaii State Teacher of the Year. I'm based in Honolulu, and her name is Lori, and, and she was teaching third and fourth graders, and they developed a massive campaign to try to save the vaquera dolphin in one of the gulfs off of Mexico, the Gulf of Mexico. And it was just such an inspiring story. And thinking about those kids, you know, at such a young age, already kind of predisposed to make a difference. And I love that idea. I just, I just think it's a, it's a great thing for kids to just have no limit on that idea of I can make a difference now. So that's great. So, hey, everyone, we've been talking to Sora Schools co-founder Garrett Smiley. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Garrett Smiley, who, according to Ted Dintersmith, is out to change the world of education. Okay, so Garrett, time to jump into the, the deep blue pool that is Sora Schools. 
So for a few of my episodes, I have received feedback that I have not provided enough details about what the schools whose leaders I'm talking to actually do. So this time, let's dive into what Sora Schools is and does. So I'm going to read a paragraph about Sora and then ask you several questions, kind of a lightning round. So here goes. Here's the quote. Our curriculum is designed to meet the needs and goals of all students while delivering a program that is empowering, engaging, rigorous, and relevant. Our approach is founded on inquiry-based and interdisciplinary learning to give students the opportunity to develop knowledge and skills through engaging projects based on real-world challenges and problems. Okay, so Garrett, several lightning round questions. Let's have you, you know, kind of keep your responses to the lightning type, right? Okay, so here goes. So number one, how is the nature of sound an example of an expedition? Yeah, great question. So nature of sound, that I believe is in our our pre-calculus sequence, if I recall. And the premise of SOAR is kids still learn the same things as traditional school. So Mm -hmm. we actually aren't deviating too far from the standards you would expect. We're layering on an extra layer of competencies, we say, but it's not all that different. We just repackage them in these really interesting, hooky, you might say, mm-hmm. classes, like the example you just gave. Mm-hmm. So in that example, they're probably learning both about perhaps history through music, but they're also applying knowledge of waves and, and such and modeling them with their knowledge of pre-calculus. Mm-hmm. So what is an expedition? How do you define an expedition? An expedition is an interdisciplinary inquiry-based class <laughs> where kids meet about two to three hours a week synchronously mm. in a group of about 20 kids. And then across six weeks, they're all working to both explore a real-world topic, mm. like perhaps how to build a Martian civilization or history through fashion or something like this, while creating an awesome project approaching professional-level work mm. that demonstrates they understand core standards from basically like traditional school. We're just repackaging them into these interesting, relevant expeditions. And importantly, they choose them. So we give Mm -hmm. them hundreds of different options and they choose three every six weeks. Got it. And so obviously, Garrett, some of the time they're working alone and some of the time they're working collaboratively with others, right? Correct. Got it. Okay. All right. Number two, how is reading the book, The Purple Hibiscus, an example of an activity. So activities are a slightly different concept at Sora. We always want, most of our students do expeditions for for the majority of the time. Mm. And expeditions, like we said, are these group experiences. However, since every kid is on their own journey, sometimes they just want to run down a rabbit hole. Mm. And so that's what activities are. So we have hundreds of different activities like Purple Hibiscus, which I think is a, I recall, coming of age story, a girl in Africa dealing with war and conflict, I believe. So there they're learning both a standard in ELA, because I believe they're creating their own book mirroring that purple hibiscus, I think, mm-hmm. while they're also learning the the historical events, pursuing more detail of the historical events as discussed in the novel. So that's an example of expeditions and activities at Sora don't have to be these huge scope type things that teach a whole year's worth of content. It can yeah. just hit two standards. It's totally okay. Yeah. Wow. Here's this moment, Garrett. It almost happens in every episode. Now I'm just here. I'm age 65 and I'm I'm wishing I could go back to school. 
This sounds so perfect <laughs> for me in my, my young self back 47 years ago. Okay, number three, how is chemistry for cooks an example of an independent study exhibition? I think I've got that term right. Yeah, so this is the third concept at Sora, which are ISCs, independent mm. study. I usually say experiences, but mm. this is, okay. people use different words, <laughs> even at Sora. ISCs are this this idea that if you get excited about something at Sora, we always want to default to yes. So mm. we encourage the students, let's pitch a project idea that came out of your own brain. And we tag the units and abilities, the standards basically to these, and you still have someone to work with and you still get a, you know, quote unquote mastery score, which translates to a grade, but it came from your brain. So we, yes, the answer is yes, you can work on that thing. So chemistry for cooks, I believe was this student's idea of bridging their passion of like, I believe sourdough something. And mm. they wanted to learn stoichiometry in the context and balancing chemical equations in the context of what is the chemistry happening when you bake breads. It was pretty interesting. Wow. Amazing. I'm recalling, you know, my first career was as a chef way over 40 years ago. And I just remember that first moment in chef school when everybody was expecting to cook something. And instead we had a talk by a baker about, you know, what gluten is and how the proteins <laughs> work. And I remember just being kind of blown away, like, wait, what? There's chemistry, there's biology, <laughs> right? you know, all of that. Okay, last one. Finally, I was curious to note that an explanation of your math curriculum has a special section at your site, like kind of front and center. So is there a math through line at Sora that ties into all learning? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so students take math and foreign language throughout their whole, well, foreign language is only two to three years, but it is a separate experience, a separate class. And mm -hmm. then the rest of the subjects are through these interdisciplinary expeditions that the students choose. So math is a bit of a different thing. And many people, when they first come across our model, because they're only used to traditional school, they ask, okay, so kids are learning about cooking and, and Mars and all these things, but do they learn anything real <laughs> is a common. So yeah. we really try to emphasize the students are still learning all the same stuff. We're just repackaging it in yeah. these other contexts and math. Your student is still learning math in this a sequence that makes sense for math, but we're still using the idea of project-based learning, inquiry-based learning. So students are still doing their problems, so they're learning about math, they're learning about FOIL, all these things, but we really try to get them to synthesize it, perhaps just in the context of math, but it's extra awesome when they're able to combine it in either an independent study or one of their other expeditions. Got it. Fabulous. So we're going to shift directions slightly, but intentionally, and we're going to look at values. So you sent me to this website, which was titled Sora Mindsets and Employee Values, an Expedition. And of course, I went down the rabbit hole, which is essentially a, a reflective enrollment process for Sora employees. And Garrett, I was way down this rabbit hole when I encountered a section about employee values, which are care wildly, grab the wheel, make it legendary, and take play seriously. So not in my whole life, not over four careers and employment in countless businesses, have I ever seen these kinds of values, Garrett? So 
What is their origin story and how might fly on the wall listeners see these values and action like day in and day out in the online world that is Sora schools? So I believe value should be controversial. <laughs> the value shouldn't be like, be nice people. Those are expectations we should all hold of each mm. other. Mm-hmm. Value should be a trade-off. So for example, grab the wheel is about agency. We really want our students and our faculty to have this feeling that, oh, I can be the change I want to see in the world, but mm. I can be, to use a cliche, but I can actually make a difference. But we are the mission. This isn't that big of an organization. If we want to accomplish what we all come here to <laughs> saying we want to accomplish, which is to offer this, this future-focused, innovative pedagogy at scale for millions of kids who we think need it, it's not just going to happen. Mm. You need to grab the wheel of, of this and of, of your own life and your effort wow. and make it happen, right? Wow. Love it. And take place seriously is this idea of we think these are difficult problems and education is inherently challenging (laughs) there it's human psychology at scale and we all know we all have parent and student stories that are you know we we can trade in our fun Mm. but we just want to have this mindset of what we're doing here is is from the best of intentions and we're going to enjoy it because the journey is the reward and so we want to have this i've talked at company events about this this image of we want to be kind of dancing through the flames, right? It, mm. It's just way more fun to do life this way, and it's way more energizing, right? Mm, yeah, so that's controversial as well. Make it legendary. I think in education, and of course, sometimes we have to default to this, but there's this feeling of like good enough. There's so much to do. There's, and we want to be we want to be a little different than that. We want to do things properly, even if it means we are going to, you know, really pour ourselves into every problem. We want to be the the, you know, like Apple who worries about the how the inside of their their computers look, right? Yeah. Even though no one will see them. We really want to show that quality and care cuz we think we think students and parents can feel it. I think make it legendary is my favorite of of those values. <laughs> I just like totally responded to that because it's very personal. It's like my my definition of what is legendary is between me and myself. I can figure that out and I don't have to live up to somebody else's definition of it. But anyway, I'm just I'm I'm really impressed by this, Garrett. I just love the idea of these values. So That'll be really interesting. I'll be on the lookout in future episodes to see how people's values drive them forward as well. So Garrett, under the heading Real World Learning, one of your expeditions, which is a choice learners can make, is called the Culinary Globetrotters. And of course, it spoke to me. You know, I've got this history as a chef way, way back. So this the course description is, and I quote, embark on a mouthwatering odyssey and unravel the mysteries of global cuisine. Have you ever been captivated by the aromatic spices of Indian and Thai curry or wondered about the Danish dinner table's unique delights? 
Are you intrigued by the role of olive oil in the Mediterranean diet? This tantalizing expedition welcomes curious taste explorers and challenges picky eaters to expand their culinary horizons. So, Garrett, how is this expedition different from, say, an elective at a traditional high school that has a culinary CTE pathway with an on-campus restaurant staffed by students that serves the public? Like, what are the degrees of difference here? What is the repackaging that happens that makes Sora's approach different? Well, first and foremost, that sounds awesome. <laughs> that sort of CTE program. Yeah, I wish I'd had it when I was in high school, for sure. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Sora, expeditions are meant to be, they're still rigorous learning experiences. And perhaps some of the ones that play better on the website are, you know, a little fluffier than, than average, I'll be honest. But the idea is you want to embed all learning in a context that feels important and relevant to kids. Mm. And because remember, expeditions are really, it's where our middle schoolers and our high schoolers, it's where we spark interest. And mm. then ISCs and activities are, and even our dual enrollment partnerships are usually where we see kids who have that kindling of a flame really push into their, their interests. So expeditions are meant to be this rehabilitation <laughs> where kids realize oh, that is a question. That is a paragraph that resonates me, with me. I guess I am curious. Mm. Curiosity is lacking in most schools. So I guess I am curious about those questions. I'll enroll in this. And then we still have, you know, a significant portion of it. They're reading about, about history and spice trade and all, you know, all of these things. And we still tag it to our standards and our open audited grade book. It's still, you know, it, it's rigorous, but we do spend time to connect that to these questions genuinely. This isn't just a hook that we forget. Mm. We do at the end of it. We want every kid to be able to answer those questions and prove demonstration of their competency on those, those standards. So we really try to walk both ways, but it's a little different than someone who's in just a you know culinary track on, right. in their school. The purpose of these questions, these types of questions, is to create that curiosity, that itch in their brain. And they realize, wow, learning actually the point of learning is that it actually does help me understand, interact with the real world, right? Right. And I love the part where, you know, when I read that description, Gyarados, like, wow, this is global education. Even though you might not be traveling to the Mediterranean or going to Denmark, you know, or going to Thailand, you are in a global education expedition. And I've been talking about that a lot with, with guests these days. I'm really fascinated by the ways that we can develop global education without incurring the expense of travel. As much as you would love to travel, there are ways to give kids these types of global experiences. So that's very cool. So we're going to change directions here a little bit. Garrett, I graduated from high school 47 years ago, and my cumulative GPA, or to use your words, my permanent record, was a mediocre, lame, way below average, underachieving 26 and ever since I first saw Ted Dittersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed, I have slowly begun to change my view of that 2.6. And I think today I, I wear it as a badge of honor almost and use my GPA as a way to describe my time in high school as a waste at best. So Sora Schools sees my permanent record as a scare tactic, I think. 
And I wonder if you can use my story as a gateway to explaining what mastery learning is and how it works and how your learning management system or LMS captures learning. Absolutely. I think traditional education, and we forget this, and I mean, your listeners probably, it's top of mind, but I think the general population forgets that the fundamental trade-off that traditional education, especially for adolescents, because I think it is meaningfully different, the fundamental trade-off they're making is that to get kids to do things, they are going to threaten them constantly. They are going to, it's not about learning, right? If your student the day after the test knew everything, it doesn't matter in traditional school, right? Mm. Because it was never about the learning. That's not what the school is actually most worried about, right? Because if they were in that example, they would have went, great, you learned it. Let's do it. Let's try again. You know, let's, let's think of a way for you to demonstrate. That's not what they're, they're worried about myriad other things, right? So I really first try to get people to realize this is a system that's meant to poke and prod kids and raise the stakes and the consequences thus that, you know, either a kid's psyche breaks or they are beaten into submission, you know, a little too dramatic about it. Mm. I think that is wrong on so many levels. And this is related to our philosophy of motivation, which I alluded to previously, Mm. which is there is another way. You will always need consequences. You will always need incentives in everything in life. I recognize that. But you can dramatically move toward a system related to our expedition conversation Mm. that inspires kids and convinces them that this is important and worthy of their time, right? Adults rarely have enough respect for kids to have that conversation when they ask, when am I ever going to need to know this? Or how is the connection to my goals? Or, Or, you know, these common questions. We rarely have enough respect for kids to have a robust conversation about that. And that's where enduring motivation comes from, right? That's where motivation that doesn't need to be, you know, on the back of a threat comes from. Mm. So to bring those ideas into reality, I think you need two components. You need more, but I'll highlight two. You need this interdisciplinary education, which we've already talked a bit about. Yep. And you need mastery-based assessment. And what mastery means to us is that students move on when they're ready. So if a student, you know, at the end of the six weeks isn't ready yet to demonstrate their mastery, perhaps they just haven't gotten it yet. It's not so long, buddy. It's instead, let's try again. How else can we demonstrate this learning? Can we resubmit this project? And what I like to say at Sora is we still give grades because I actually like the objectivity. And this is a bit, you know, I guess I break with perhaps some of the people you've had on your podcast, actually like the objectivity. It forces that radical candor, perhaps you can say, Mm. between students and faculty. Mm -hmm. But what we say every time to students and parents is no grades are final until graduation at Sora. You can always try and try again. We will always work with you to give you another way to demonstrate your mastery. Not only another way, but ideally another context, another question we can pursue another, we really try to work with students to make learning feel relevant to their goals and feel like, you know, our goal for them isn't to line them up and compare them to other kids. Our genuine goal is positive sum. We want to help every kid become, you know, the best version of themselves. Mm. So that's Mm -hmm. what mastery means to me, very tactically. 
every student at the end of their six-week experiences, they create a final project and they've engaged in class. And so the leader of that experience looks holistically and they say, which we say units and abilities, but basically which standards were attached to this experience. And they give kids a zero to four score. Mm. Kids also self-assess, by the way, students also self-assess. They get this score back. The advisor talks to them about the difference between the two. And if it's not what the student wanted, they try and try again. And your LMS, which is called Sora Home, is the doorway through which everybody walks in order to see what's what in this in this mastery system, right? Right. The reason we've had to develop our own software is because this way of educating kids is complicated. And if you want to solve it just with people, you know, paperwork measuring where every kid is on their their learning journey, and you know, it'd be basically impossible or extremely expensive. So we've developed our own LMS that helps students first see where they're at with, we have hundreds of different standards and it's non-linear at Sora. So kids can go mm-hmm. in whatever order outside of some explicit dependencies, but really whatever order excites them. So it helps them both manage, are they on track to graduating? Are they learning enough new stuff for six weeks to, to hit their goals? But it also helps them. We have all these different expeditions starting every six weeks, and you can also propose projects like we've talked about. You can do activities. You can do all these different things, helping them make decisions for which of these to take based on the, both their needs and interests. Mm-hmm. So you, we've had to develop our own LMS, SIS, basically the whole software suite to run a school like this, especially at the price point we do, which is less than at least every public school I'm aware of. Awesome. Whew, boy. I love the complexity, but I also love the simplicity of the values and of the expeditionary style approach. Garrett, again, just having this feeling right here of, oh, I wish I was back in school again. It's such a neat feeling to know that if a different circumstance had existed, that my record of mastery, which, you know, outside of school would have been something I would have been keenly interested in because everything that I did outside of school was where my curiosity really, you know, existed. And it's just one of those things where it's just such a a beautifully complex thing, but it's so simple in its approach to learning. So that's great stuff. So, hey, everyone, we have been talking to the co-founder and CEO of Sora Schools, Garrett Smiley. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds Podcast. 
Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Hey everyone, we are back with Garrett Smiley, who, through Sora Schools and other initiatives, has plans to impact the lives of a million young people in America and beyond. So Garrett, I have never done this before in this podcast, but I'm going to share something very personal with you and our listeners. So reading your Sora ebook titled, What Place Does Love Have in the Classroom?, ultimately made me pretty emotional, with the dam breaking late on the Friday afternoon before this interview. And I got a little choked up, and I got angry as your written words walk me through all that I missed in middle and high school. I felt like I wanted to file kind of involuntary, negligent homicide charges against my school for, and I echo the words of Sir Ken Robinson, attempting to kill my inherent curiosity and wonder. So here in 2024, at age 65, I have discovered and am acting on what Sora Schools says is my agency, growth mindset, and metacognition. So what say you, Garrett Smiley, to us older folks who are trying to reimagine education and trying to reconcile with our traditional school histories and the opportunity costs of those school histories? Well, I'll say I'm right there alongside you. I also had an extremely traditional education. And, you know, I have to put it bluntly, a lot of people are broken by their education. A lot of people are broken. And if you're not, or you feel like you have at least the pieces you can put back together, like Humpty Dumpty, (laughs) we have that, that ability to grow as people. We have that growth mindset, like you said. We have the metacognitive ability to look at what we want to improve about ourselves, bring that, you know, that honest eye of examination into to our own lives. We have the ability to reignite that curiosity. It's our human right. It's, it's how our psychology works. So we just have to become more intimately familiar and connected with it. I think traditional education has kind of, perhaps you could say, lost the forest for the trees, mm. where we worry so much about making sure every kid, at least in one instance of time, can recall these facts and fragments of history or what have you, that we've forgotten that education should be about inspiring kids to both fall in love with the world we share and strive to be useful to their fellow humans and their Mm. community, right? Mm. That is actually the backbone, not familiarity with, you know, what other subset of facts we were focusing on this year, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's so important for us as educators to re-examine what is the mission of education. And I'll take a brief moment to say every mission statement I've read of public schools, most, okay, there's some that get it right, but 90% are kind of depressing because they say something like the purpose of th- this LA, whatever, LAUSD, I was going to say, I'm sure I'll call them out because I believe they have one that's very similar, is to ensure every kid is is prepared to graduate and be productive members and college ready or productive members of their first job. You know, it's something 
that's like saying the purpose of school is to finish school, right? Yeah. Are we have we really lost all perspective on what this this endeavor is of how we're trying to parent kids and help parents are trusting us to raise their children with them? Is that really the best we can do for a north star of how mm. humans ought to be raised? So anyway, I just think we need really a, a moment where we all come together as people. And we forget the details for a moment, the implementation details. And we just ask ourselves, what does it mean to be human? And how should we be preparing kids to be more fully a member of this species? Well, I love that, Garrett. Well, well said, well played. I'm, you know, 6,000 miles away from New York City where you are. I'm sort of getting goosebumps a little bit because I think I'm coming to the realization that when I saw most likely to succeed for the first time, I think I may have been in a moment where I was ready to grab the wheel and make it legendary, meaning that I was ready to kind of reclaim my sense of curiosity and wonder and my desire to learn. And since then, that was nine years ago, it's been nothing but. And this podcast has been, you know, partly the, the LMS, if you will, of, of my journey of curiosity and wonder reclaimed of that making it legendary again, is that I'm just going to keep learning and learning. And so I guess to our listeners, I think the, the message is never feel like, you know, whatever happened in the past in school is defines you or is set in stone. You can feel curiosity and wonder again, and you can act on it. So thank you, Garrett. That's awesome. And I, I just, I love that short book that you wrote, What Place Does Love Have in the Classroom? It's a must read for everybody. I truly believe that. So, okay. So Garrett, not once in my entire life in education, my years teaching, my years working with Ted Didrismith on reimagining education have I ever seen a page at a school's website that lays out in graphically illustrated detail the major trends in education? If I were a parent looking for a place for my daughter, Emma, this page would speak volumes to me. So what is this page all about, these megatrends in education? How did you decide to include it at your school site? And in, in what ways do you engage your greater school community around these major trends in education like AI and mental health and teachers as coaches? It's funny you bring this up today because tomorrow we're actually releasing 2024's Trends in Education. Awesome. <laughs> so I can I can break it here, some of the things that we'll be <laughs> highlighting <laughs> tomorrow. Fantastic. But the logic of doing that is pretty straightforward. I think there is this feeling amongst really even the average family, especially post-COVID. Actually, let me use COVID as a direct example they saw perhaps in their living room for the first time what's happening in education, what all those tears and, and, and stressful you know, days that they see their kid before and after school, they see what it was all for. And I think a lot of parents are realizing, holy cow, not only is it perhaps inefficient, but the goals of the education, at least as inferred by what the kids are doing, is it doesn't feel relevant given just what we're seeing in the news and in and, and industry for a lot of these parents who, you know, see it, the future hitting their jobs today, right? Right. So the point of the trends in education is to tell families, we are not like most schools, which have been doing the same thing for hundreds of years, or at least on the same blueprint that was determined hundreds of years ago. We want to be radically in touch with 
both what kids need psychologically for the future, but also what kids need professionally for the future to be a member. The point of publishing those trends in education is to show parents we really have our finger on the pulse of what's going on. And so your kid will too. We doubled down this year on some trends that you just mentioned, like AI continues to be hugely exciting. And I think in the ethos of project-based learning, it is in our best interest as a society to have kids be intimately familiar with these tools and how to use them. Mm-hmm. Super exciting developments on that front. Yep. We've also been looking at virtual reality this year is is having kind of a renaissance because of Apple's headset, but we're seeing a lot more venture dollars go into it. So honestly, to bring it full circle, Hopper would be extremely excited because this is kind of like that math land, that French land thing I was talking about, immersive learning environment. Yeah. So we're seeing some really exciting trends that we try to immediately implement in our school. Yeah, that's awesome. If I were a school principal and I were listening, I'd be thinking this is a magic moment, Garrett, to sort of galvanize my community, bring them together query them about what they see are the megatrends that are happening out there, both in education and just in society in general, and then pull it all together. What a marvelous school community project that would be to put that all together and to put it up on on your school's website. So I really applaud you for doing that. And I've actually already gotten some feedback I've shared with people here in the education community here in Hawaii, that megatrends link on your site. And the feedback coming back, Garrett, is like, whoa, that's awesome. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to seeing what the 2023 unveil is. So that's great. So Garrett, as we come down to the end of this marvelous conversation, I want to kind of go back to you as Garrett Smiley, the person, the human, the educator, the curious cat. And so in the past, I've asked guests to share the names of books and authors whose influence has been outsized, if you will. And in your case, what you provided me was so fantastic that I decided to build a whole like why we read seminar into this interview. So I'm going to name the book and author and you give us the sort of 30 second reason why our listeners might love reading it. Okay, so here's number one. So, Garrett, what is beautiful about the beginning of infinity by David Deutsch? This is a lot of pressure. I feel like I have to justify these people's some of the most beautiful ideas I've ever come across in 30 seconds. Um, I'll do my best. Okay. This book is extremely beautiful because it is this meandering exploration on the importance of knowledge. Mm. That's really what the book is about. And so he basically creates a narrative that what makes humans special is our ability to create new knowledge. Mm. And knowledge is really like a fundamental force in the universe. It's the reason I can live here in New York City where it's 23 degrees today. It's because we learned how to overcome these challenges. We learned that problems are, in his words, soluble. They are able to be overcome. So he really both creates this 
idea that to be human is to joyously solve problems. And also that knowledge creation is a moral force that by creating new ideas, you're creating more utility, which is helping people. And that mm. is that is all we can hope to do as people. Wow, fantastic. Okay, number two, why might man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl be an important read for education leaders right now here in 2024? Well, I've heard this one mentioned a few times on your podcast, so mm. I know it's a favorite. It is. This one hit me early in my life too. And I think it deeply connected with some other persistent strands of curiosity, perhaps you could call them, of my life around human psychology and and these more contemplative traditions. And Viktor Frankl, first of all, just the setting of the book is yeah. powerful and impactful. You know, writing in the midst of the Holocaust, that as an act alone is amazing. But his observations on how does meaning, how does our perception of the importance of things, how does it not only give us motivation to, you know, do our do our jobs that me and you are doing, but how does it literally serve as a life force to people persisting through the Holocaust, right? Mm. So it's a meditation on human psychology and, and it points towards something I deeply believe in, which is we are the creators of meaning. We are the people who who need to almost intellectualize ourselves into, into action. Mm. Awesome. Okay, number three, what can we learn about our monkey instincts in The Science of Enlightenment by Shinsen Young? Yeah, I think, and I will start this the way I always do when I talk about these sort of subjects. When I talk about meditation and these sort of things, it's, it's in no way religious at all, right? And this is one of the reasons I love Shinsen Young in this intro book. It is a deep dive on what we as educators know as metacognition. How do our thoughts work? <laughs> so much of our reality is downstream mm. of what we believe, our self-limiting beliefs and our worldviews, mm. right? So mm -hmm. being able to really become intimately familiar with how our minds work, our thought processes will be extremely beneficial. So I encourage educators, and I'm still trying to figure out a way to really, you know, bring this to Sora, you know, in, in all the ways it could be. But I really think a foundation of education is teaching kids first how to concentrate, which is the fundamental building block of meditation, but also how do we help kids just become more familiar with mm. how their thoughts are both birthed and evolved? Because you can find down this path, you will find, oh my goodness, I I'm defeating myself before I even start because this this little, you know, it's almost like cognitive behavioral therapy. This little thought just keeps coming up and noticing it is the first step to overcoming it. Wow, that's awesome. So number four, what are your memories of the memory book by Harry Lorraine? <laughs> this was one of the moments in high school is when I first stumbled across this book. And it's an extremely tactical guide, I'll, I'll say in there. There are probably better starting points perhaps into this world. but. When I realized that people can memorize a shuffled deck of cards in 30 seconds, what do you mean? That's impossible, right? Mm. Or people can remember a whole, you know, short book of poetry in one reading and recite it years later. That's got to be impossible, right? Especially given the backdrop of a school system that I was raised in that heavily, heavily, heavily emphasized memorization. Yeah. I thought it was sad and hilarious that I'm only now realizing that 
I can use techniques to remember things. Like no one ever told me that, right? They just told me, go, go home and remember this. Yeah. So this was one of those moments where I'm like, okay, first of all, these techniques are extremely fun. It's about turning inert information into stories and mental imagery. But also I can use this to kind of breeze through education now. Thank you. <laughs> so I think every education, every educator, if you believe in the importance of memorizing things as I do, you really ought to start with how to do that. <laughs> mm, got it. Wow. Amazing. All right. And finally, number five, how did Abundance by Peter Diamandis, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, shift your mindset at age 15? Peter Diamandis wrote this book, Abundance, with Kotler, I think his name is. And honestly, it's a good book. It's, it's not the best book on the subject ever, but the whole premise of it it's related to David Deutsch's beginning of infinity, by the way, but mm. it's this idea of human solve problems. And one of the most enduring lessons of my education, which I had to unlearn, is that life is a zero-sum game. We're mm. always, I'm competing against my friends, get number one in class rank so I can escape this place and go to the school I want to. And their suffering is my victory. <laughs> like that's honestly how a lot of traditional education feels. Yeah, That's not how life works. And I think a lot of people bring this into their, their later lives. But Peter Diamandis, he investigates how much better life has gotten over time for everyone. It's mm. not dog-eats-dog dog world. It's look how the childhood mortality rate has dropped over time. Look at, you know, even like air conditioning and look at the availability of energy and look how he just graphs improvements over time across a bunch of different and it woke me up and i realized oh my goodness this is a game we can all play together we can all be smart happy and successful right mm. wow that's awesome garrett and i'll i'll share with you that i think it was early in 2023 when I made a sort of conscious decision via this podcast to plant my flag on the hill that rejects zero-sum games and absolutely embraces the concept of abundance, especially in learning. There is there is an infinity to learning and a great abundance. So I just, I love that. And all right, so sorry, one more. If you were the head of school, Garrett, which you are, and you were going to pick one of these books to have the entire faculty, staff, coaches, mentors, guides, students, and parents read. Which one would it be? Oh, man. It's like picking between <laughs> your, your children. Yes. Speaking of zero-sum games, yes. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's read all of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I think, I think Man's Search for Meaning has a unique way of meeting people where they're at. Yeah. And kind of, it's one of those, it's like the gateway drug for a lot of important ideas. <laughs> so I would probably pick that one, but Beginning of Infinity is a close second. Yeah. Love Man's Search for Meaning. It is a beautiful meditation. And I think I would have gone in that direction as well, though I don't know the other books. So thank you, Garrett, for taking us through these, these books that have been instrumental in your life. Appreciate that. And I think our listeners are going to be inspired by your responses to these, these different books. So Garrett, I love to end episodes by giving guests the opportunity to shout out to someone upon whose shoulders they stand, that person who mentored, coached, guided, sponsored, and lifted them up and believed in them. So who is John Danner and what is Union Square Ventures? And how are they the giants upon whose shoulders you stand? Yeah, founded Sora when I was extremely young. 
senior year at Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. I've never been an educator. I've never been. There's there's no reason you all should trust me besides the the value of the ideas hopefully I'm putting forth and hopefully you resonate with them. But I just had these opinions clearly <laughs> about how education ought to work. And I started kind of seeing them from the rooftops. And most people had the reaction that they should have had, which is like, who is this this nobody talking about such an important thing? What is he doing? But the first two people to give the Sora organization, the Sora entity money, were, was John Danner, founder of Rocket Ship Charter Schools. Mm. And he gave us that stamp for approval that, that somebody who knows what he's doing, like John, was willing to invest in both us as people and this organization. So that was incredible. And a lot of our credibility came from that in the early days. And Union Square Ventures are really iconic group of people who have partnered with some iconic organizations from Twitter all the way to Etsy to, you know, tons of different organizations. And they, they came in and they bet on us and they gave Sora money again in a time where we only had 38 students, but they saw the promise of of both our pedagogy and the software, how it was going to make this accessible to hopefully millions of kids in the near future. So uh, just huge, huge props to those people for believing in us first. Yeah, that's awesome. Three cheers to all the people who believe in us, right? That's the whole Amen. idea. <laughs> Amen to that. So Garrett, before we go, before we say goodbye, I just want to share something with you. I went into your section, the niche.com section that you shared with me, and I, I looked through the reviews of Sora, and I actually started copying and pasting them into first a word cloud, which I was pretty disappointed with. It yielded two words, Sora and schools. And I'm like, okay, that wasn't very helpful. <laughs> but then I took as many as I possibly could, and I dropped them into ChatGPT, and I asked ChatGPT to kind of summarize what people were feeling about Sora schools. And my goodness, what ChatGPT delivered to me was just amazing. It's just all these words like transformative and engaging and so on and so forth. And I was just like, wow, this is really cool. And so I admire you and your staff and your faculty and Sora for having a system where your clients, if you will, your parents, your families, your students, have an opportunity to provide those reviews. And congratulations, because it's like a great restaurant. Whew, you're getting five stars up and down the line. And I think that that's actually really special. You folks are working really hard. And, and this has been a real treat for me to spend a couple of weeks deep diving into what you do and what your school is all about. So thank you for this opportunity to have this conversation today. And What School Could Be is going to be cheering you on as you move forward into 2024 and beyond. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you, Josh. And thanks for having me. Our editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music is created by a remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work on his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and 2,000 cities. We'd be grateful if you would support these episodes with Leading Edge, innovative and imaginative educators and students by giving us your own rating and writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. 
This series is sponsored by Education Change Agent, Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the award-winning documentary film, Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. If you are committed to rolling up your sleeves and joining thousands of educators, business professionals, nonprofit leaders, and parents, as we reimagine education to be relevant and learner-centered, please join the What School Could Be global online community. Simply log in to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or download the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast and on LinkedIn at Josh Rapoon. Listeners, one of the most important things we all can do is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. For sure, we need a surplus of both right now. Until next time, ahui ho, and thank you for listening to the What School Could Be podcast.